Welcome to the Willie Jackson Experiment. I'm your host, the one, the only, Willie Jackson. Alright. No, dude, I'm telling you right now, there has got to be intelligent life out in the universe. So, I have this show coming to you guys live right now. We are going to try to prove that there's intelligent life in the universe. And that's our goal right now. That's what we're trying to do. We're going to try and bring you an entire show showing you it's intelligent life. You guys are going to love it. So, um, cue the awesome audio and go. On November 14th, 2004, Commander David Fravor and his wingman pilot took off from the USS Nimitz, which was on maneuver south of San Diego. I was the commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 4-1, the Black Aces. We're flying brand new Super Hornets. It was an air defense exercise, two good guys against two bad guys. Probably. 70 miles, 60 miles off the coast in the gap between San Diego and Ensenada. Suddenly, the pilots are contacted by radar operators on the Princeton. The Princeton control comes up and says, we're going to suspend training. We have real world tasking. The pilots are re-vectored to a new destination, but aren't told why. So we start heading off to the west. The other airplane is on my left-hand side. I was the junior pilot trying to keep up with uh, the senior pilot and the lead aircraft. We're looking, we don't see anything on our radars at all. And we're talking to each other, trying to figure this out. The Princeton's Aegis Spy-1 radar system is powerful enough to track an object as small as a baseball at an altitude of 80,000 feet. But the jets are flying blind. We tried to see what was out there, which is difficult when you know what you're looking for. Uh, it's even harder when you don't know what you're looking for. So it goes down 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, gets all the way down. They get to a point where they can't separate us from the blimp. They call it merge plot, which means you're in the same space as whatever you're looking for, and you got to start looking outside because the radar can't help you anymore. Then far below in the water, they see what looks like a plane crash or a submerging submarine. But the weapons officer in the rear seat of Fravor's jet spots something else. I hear, hey, Skipper, do you see and as he's saying that, I notice the tic-tac. It's white. It has no wings. It has no rotors. I go, holy, what is that? And he goes, I don't know. According to this leaked summary of the incident, contact was made here, 30 miles off the coast, 70 miles south of the U.S.-Mexico border. At first, a strange craft stays close to the surface, moving unlike anything the pilots had ever seen. This thing would go instantaneous from one way to another, similar to if you threw a ping pong ball against a wall. And we start to kind of orbit, because now we're going to watch this thing. We start a right-hand turn, and we're going from a clock code. The object is in the middle of the clock, and we're at 6 o'clock, and we're driving around the circle. So we get to about 9 o'clock, and it's just still doing its little erratic thing, kind of moving around this disturbance in the water. And, and I go, hey, I'm going to go check it out. We'll go down there. As we're coming down nice and easy, we get to about the 12 o'clock position, and all of a sudden it goes, and it kind of turns, and it's now it's mirroring us, and it starts coming up. And we're like, okay, now it knows we're here. 
It seemed to be aware and it seems to recognize him. It goes from basically just almost a hover into a pretty aggressive climb up to our altitude. So there's a bit of fear because now you're out there dealing with something that you have no idea what it is. It's actually reacting to what we're doing. I'm kind of pulling nose, you know, to where he's going to be. And he's coming up. He just rapidly accelerates beyond anything that I've ever seen. Crosses my nose and it's gone. And I'm like, whoa. The Tic Tac appears to have vanished. But as the jets streak towards a prearranged rendezvous location, known as the cap point, the radio chatter becomes frantic. The controller from the Princeton comes up right as we're doing all this and says, hey, sir, you're not going to believe this. He goes, but that thing is at your cap point. According to Fravor, the Tic Tac accelerated from a standing position and flew approximately 60 miles in under a minute as fast as 3,700 miles an hour. How did the Tic Tac know the pilot's cap point? And how did it accelerate so quickly? You got something that can accelerate and disappear and then show up 60 miles away. Kind of in awe a little bit, because you go, whoa, we don't have that. You know, and I'm talking, we're flying a, one of the premier airplanes on the planet. What was this? There was a capability out there. Don't know where it's from. Not saying it's from outer space but not saying it's from here either. Back on the Nimitz, the pilots tell the rest of the squadron what just happened. The next crew is getting ready. So we're talking to them about this, and they're like, you got to be kidding. They took us seriously, and the Wizzo, the guy in the back seat, said, I'm going to go find it. The next jet to launch had a targeting pod with an infrared sensor and camera. It jammed the radar, but he got a lock on it. And that's the video that you see. That doesn't weird you out. I don't know what does. They don't want to be known. What we can do is judge their actions. Do they want to help us? Do they want to harvest us? The big question is intent, who they are, why they're here, why they stick around with us. The question is, what possible visitations has the U.S. government been keeping from the public? So we're going to see more of those sorts of videos, I think. Secondly, I think we'll see more documents. And I think the other thing we will see, people who have been involved in this, they are going to come forward and speak out. People in the world and government start to get more information till eventually they acknowledge, yes, there's extraterrestrials here. Was it possible? Did these beings come from another world or from a parallel universe? We'll bring you the dramatic story of what happened over our nation's capital just one week ago tonight. Nobody's ever really seen it or know where it's at, but it's out there. But I think it's a noble pursuit to try to figure out why. Could we be on the verge of another conflict. We will have a broad awareness of who they are, what they're doing, why they're doing it.
There are certain places on Earth UFO skeptics should avoid at all costs. They are vortexes for strange encounters. These UFO hotspots are where thousands of people have reported seeing unexplained objects in the sky around the world. The Hudson River Valley, New York, Stonehenge, Sedona, Arizona. Enigmatic photographs, cryptic ruins, and a search for answers. And there certainly isn't any airplane that goes into a motion like that and lives. Are these places the Earth's open door? What could they have in common? According to a new theory, a lot more than you think. There is a direct correlation between the UFO sightings and the location of these chambers. This is case number 80103, Vortexes. Some places on Earth receive more rain than others. Some locations are hotter, colder, windier, and some have a preponderance of something else, UFOs. A region's extreme environmental conditions can be explained now that science has shown the underlying forces that determine our weather. But what explains UFO hotspots? If UFOs exist, a new theory may explain the conditions that create a preponderance of sightings in specific locations on Earth. One of those conditions may be something created by the Earth itself. There may be huge pockets of energy spilling out of the Earth, and, and these extraterrestrials know how to tap into it. That might explain why we have these hot spots, why some uh, UFOs seem to be spotted around certain areas. And actual very reputable researchers have said, spiraling around the planet are these ley lines, and they form what's known as the Earth's grid. It's the Earth's grid of a certain kind of an energy, whether it's magnetic, whether it's electrical, that actually draws UFOs to them. Where these ley lines and where the Earth's grid, the lines on the Earth's grid meet, these are the vortexes. The dark, sinister woods of the Hudson River Valley, New York, are the setting for the legends of the Headless Horseman and Rip Van Winkle. Their mystery has endured into our times, but now a UFO component has been added. June 25, 1962, balls of light pass over Ossining causing vehicles below to stall. June 15, 1963, an enormous craft moves silently through the skies over Newburgh. December 31, 1981, the start of the biggest UFO vortex mystery of all time, when thousands of witnesses report seeing something very strange in the sky. It all begins when a retired policeman in Kent, New York, steps out into his backyard for a breath of crisp night air. A cluster of red, green, and white lights in the sky catches his attention. Assuming at first that they are helicopters flying in formation, he watches the lights move toward him from the south. As the lights get closer, he is stunned to see that these are not helicopters. A huge V-shaped craft with colored lights spaced along the edges is moving through the sky above his home and as it passes overhead, 
it hums. The object is seen regularly in the area for the next five years. On March 24, 1983, hundreds of people see a gigantic boomerang with 18 bright lights cruising slowly parallel to the Taconic Parkway. The witnesses who get out of their cars to watch the strange craft notice something distinctive. It hums as it passes overhead and looks and sounds like no known aircraft. The switchboard of Peekskill and Yorktown police are flooded that night with calls reporting a giant V-shaped craft moving slowly over the area. Sightings continued regularly for the next five years. By the time the flap is over in 1986, more than 5,000 reports of the strange craft are filed. What could cause the activity in the Hudson Valley or at other UFO hotspots around the world? One theory has something to do with how the Earth itself works. The Earth's core generates an enormous amount of electricity. Inconsistencies in the crust means that the energy release in some areas is stronger than in others. It's been theorized that ancient monuments sit on these power points and that by connecting them with straight lines called ley lines, a worldwide grid can be mapped. Before the team takes their investigation to the Hudson River Valley, Stonehenge, and Sedona, Arizona, they visit the laboratory of experiments producer John Tyndall. He has prepared a demonstration of how the enormous electrical energy generated by the Earth's molten core may emerge on our planet's surface in specific locations that could be referred to as vortexes. The Earth is one giant dynamo. It is making electricity on the inside. And the in the movies, first contact usually leads to an alien invasion. Cities get zapped. Humanity faces annihilation. Maybe E.T. calling isn't such a good thing after all. Imagine if, if we got an intergalactic email so from, you know, superioralienscivilization.org. Say, hey, we're going we're gonna to show up in 30 years. Would we just be like, oh, well, let's get back to watching our reality TV shows and worry about that when they get here? No, we would seriously freak out. People might freak out. But the truth is, we've been signposting our location into the cosmos for decades. The Earth has been a detectably technological world for about a hundred years. We've been broadcasting signals. And yet, that apparently hasn't attracted anyone's attention. It's pretty noteworthy that none of them has shown any interest when they could have turned Earth into a parking lot if they wanted, right? Perhaps no one has redeveloped planet Earth because an advanced civilization simply doesn't want to make first contact. Frankly, if they're that intelligent, they're not going to be very interested in us. So maybe that's why they haven't bothered to, to make contact. And if the alien is that advanced, we're probably not very interesting to it. It's a little bit like, you know, wandering around outside and seeing ants on the sidewalk. An extraterrestrial invasion makes great science fiction. But what do we actually have on Earth that's worth all that alien effort? How realistic really are these depictions from Hollywood? 
One common trope is for the aliens coming to devour the human race. But the science doesn't really support this being possible. Would, would an alien even be able to digest the human body? When eating, enzymes in our digestive system break down molecules in food. The food we can eat and these enzymes are very specific to the molecules they can attack and break down. The same rules would apply to a hungry alien. To be able to digest us and for us to be nutritious for them, we'd have to have a very, very similar biochemistry to what exists on the aliens' homeworld, what their bodies have adapted to. So if it seems highly unlikely aliens would come looking for food, how about a drink? In order for life as we know it uh, to exist, one needs liquid water. If aliens live on a barren desert planet, a water world like ours could be highly attractive. While we call ourselves the Blue Planet, our oceans are not unique. The universe offers far greater water resources. In our solar system, we're finding that most of the liquid water exists in moons around the gas giants. We believe Jupiter's moon Europa has a layer of water ice around 15 miles thick, floating on an ocean up to 100 miles deep. This single moon may have twice as much water as all Earth's oceans combined. Europa is the water world of our solar system and not the Earth. So if you were an alien looking for water, you wouldn't bother going to a big planet like the Earth to suck it up through some kind of giant straw. You'd go to the outer solar system. You might harvest icy moons. Instead of working against the powerful gravitational pull of Earth, an alien race could draw water from Europa, where gravity is almost 10 times weaker. So, what other resources have we got to offer? Maybe aliens come to strip mine the Earth's crust for metals, iron or titanium or, or platinum. Aliens might use these metals for exactly the same things that we do, for building spaceships, for building their technology. Such materials could be useful for any alien civilization, short on mineral resources. Problem is, a lot of our planet's metals are buried deep in the Earth's interior. When the Earth formed, the great deal of its iron sunk down into the core of our planet and took a lot of metals with it, so they're actually quite hard to mine on the Earth. Your work-life balance? It's non-existent. You're never not. So what you're telling me is that UFOs, unidentified, flying objects are real. Bill, I think we're beyond that already. The government has already stated for the record that they're real. I'm not telling you that. The United States government is telling you that. Luis Elizondo spent 20 years running military intelligence operations worldwide in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Guantanamo. He hadn't given UFOs a second thought until 2008. That's when he was asked to join something at the Pentagon called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP. The mission of ATIP was quite simple. It was to collect and analyze information involving anomalous uh, aerial vehicles. Uh, what I guess in the vernacular you, you call them UFOs. We call them UAPs. 
You know how this sounds. It sounds nutty, wacky. Look, Bill, I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that, that it doesn't sound wacky. What I'm telling you is real. The question is, what is it? What are its intentions? What are its capabilities? Buried away in the Pentagon, ATIP was part of a $22 million program sponsored by then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid to investigate UFOs. When Elizondo took over in 2010, he focused on the national security implications of unidentified aerial phenomena documented by U.S. service members. Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces, that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that uh, it can evade radar, and that can fly through air and water and possibly space, and oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing. Elizondo tells us ATIP was a loose-knit mix of scientists, electro-optical engineers, avionics and intelligence experts, often working part-time. They combed through data and records and analyzed videos like this. A Navy air crew struggles to lock on to a fast-moving object off the U.S. Atlantic coast in 2015. Recently released images may not convince UFO skeptics, but the Pentagon admits it doesn't know what in the world this is. Or this. Or this. So what do you say to the skeptics? It's refracted light. Uh, weather balloons a rocket being launched, v Venus. In some cases, there are, are simple explanations for what people are witnessing, but there are some that, that are not. We're not just simply jumping to a conclusion that's saying, oh, that's a UAP out there. We're going through our due diligence. Is it some sort of new type of cruise missile technology that China has developed? Is it some sort of high-altitude balloon that's conducting reconnaissance? Ultimately, when you have exhausted all those what-ifs, and you're still left with, with the fact that this is in our airspace and it's real, that's when it becomes compelling and that's when it becomes problematic. Former Navy pilot Lieutenant Ryan Graves calls whatever is out there a security risk. He told us his F-18 squadron began seeing UAPs hovering over restricted airspace southeast of Virginia Beach in 2014 when they updated their jet's radar making it possible to zero in with infrared targeting cameras. So you're seeing it both with the radar and with the infrared, and that tells you that there is something out there. Pretty hard to spoof that. These photographs were taken in 2019 in the same area. The Pentagon confirms these are images of objects it can't identify. Lieutenant Graves told us pilots training off the Atlantic coast see things like that all the time. Every day. Every day for at least a couple of years. Um, wait, wait a minute, every day for a couple of years? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see an exhaust plume. Including this one, off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida in 2015, captured on a targeting camera by members of Graves' squadron. It's rotating. My gosh. Going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. You can sort of hear the surprise in their voices. You certainly can. They seem to have broke character a bit. Uh, and we're just kind of amazed at what they were seeing. 
What do you think when you see something like this? This is a difficult one to explain. You have rotation, you have high altitudes, you have propulsion, right? I don't know, I don't know what it is, frankly. He told us pilots speculate they are one of three things, secret U.S. technology, an adversary spy vehicle, or something otherworldly. I would say, you know, the highest probability is it's a threat observation program. Could it be Russian or Chinese technology? I don't see why not. Are you alarmed? I, I am worried, uh, frankly. You know, if these were tactical jets from another country that were hanging out up there, it would be a massive issue. But because it looks slightly different, we're not willing to actually look at the problem in the face. Uh, we're, we're happy to just ignore the fact that these are out there watching us every day. The government has ignored it, at least publicly, since closing its Project Blue Book investigation in 1969. But that began to change after an incident off Southern California in 2004, which was documented by radar, by camera, and four naval aviators. We spoke to two of them, David Fravor, a graduate of the Top Gun Naval Flight School and commander of the F-18 squadron on the USS Nimitz, and flying at his wing, Lieutenant Alex Dietrich, who has never spoken publicly about the encounter. I never wanted to be on national TV. <laughs> no offense. So why are you doing this? Because I was in a government aircraft, because I was on the clock, and so I feel a responsibility to, to share what I can, and it is unclassified. It was November 2004, and the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group was training about 100 miles southwest of San Diego. For a week, the advanced new radar on a nearby ship, the USS Princeton, had detected what operators called multiple anomalous aerial vehicles over the horizon, descending 80,000 feet in less than a second. On November 14th, Fravor and Dietrich, each with a weapons system officer in the back seat, were diverted to investigate. They found an area of roiling whitewater the size of a 737 in an otherwise calm blue sea. So as we're looking at this, her backseater says, hey, Skipper, do you? And about that got out, I said, dude, do you, do you see that thing down there? And we saw this little white tic-tac looking object and it's just kind of moving above the whitewater area. As Dietrich circled above, Fravor went in for a closer look. Sort of spiraling down? Yep. The tic-tac's still pointing north-south. It goes and just turns abruptly and starts mirroring me. So as I'm coming down, it starts coming up. So it's, it's mimicking your moves. Yeah, it was aware we were there. He said it was about the size of his F-18, with no markings, no wings, no exhaust plumes. I want to see how close I can get. So I go like this, and it's climbing still. And when it gets right in front of me, it just disappears. Disappears? Disappears. Like, gone. It had sped off. What are you thinking? So your, your mind tries to make sense of it. I'm going to categorize this as maybe a helicopter or <laughs> maybe a drone. And when it disappeared, I mean, it was just... Did your backseaters see this too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was four of us in the airplanes literally watching this thing for roughly about five minutes. Seconds later, the Princeton reacquired the target, 60 miles away. Another crew managed to briefly lock onto it with a targeting camera before it zipped off again. You know, I think that over beers, we've sort of said, hey man, if I saw this solo, I don't know that I would have come back and said anything because it sounds so crazy when I say it. You understand that reaction? 
I do. I've had some people tell me, you know, when you say that, you can sound crazy. And I'll be honest, I'm not a UFO guy. But from what I hear you guys saying, there's something. Yes. Oh, there's, there's definitely something that, I don't know who's building it, who's got the technology, who's got the brains, but there's, there's something out there that was better than our airplane. The air crew filed reports. Then, like the mysterious flying object, the Nimitz encounter disappeared. Nothing was said or done officially for five years until Lou Elizondo came across the story and investigated. We spend millions of dollars in training these, these pilots, and they are seeing something that they can't explain. Furthermore, that information is being backed up on electro-optical data, like gun camera footage, and by radar data. Now, to me, that's compelling. Inside the Pentagon, his findings were met with skepticism. ATIP's funding was eliminated in 2012, but Elizondo says he and a handful of others kept the mission alive until finally, frustrated, he quit the Pentagon in 2017, but not before getting these three videos declassified. And then things took a stranger turn. I tried to help my colleague, Lou Elizondo, elevate the issue in the department and actually get it to the Secretary of Defense. Christopher Mellon served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush and had access to top secret government programs. So it's not us, that's one thing we know. We know that. I could say that with a very high degree of confidence, in part because of the positions I held in the department and I know the process. Mellon says he grew concerned nothing was being done about UAPs, so he decided to do something. In 2017, as a private citizen, he surreptitiously acquired the three Navy videos Elizondo had declassified and leaked them to the New York Times. It's bizarre and unfortunate that someone like myself has to do something like that to get a national security issue like this on the agenda. He joined forces with now civilian Lou Elizondo, and they started to tell their story to anybody who would listen, to newspapers, the History Channel, to members of Congress. We knew and understood that you had to go to the public, get the public interested, to get Congress interested, to then circle back to the Defense Department and get them to start taking a look at it. And now it is. This past August, the Pentagon resurrected ATIP. It's now called the UAP Task Force. Service members now are encouraged to report strange encounters, and the Senate wants answers. Anything that enters an airspace that's not supposed to be there is a threat. After receiving classified briefings on UAPs, Senator Marco Rubio called for a detailed analysis. This past December, while he was still head of the Intelligence Committee, he asked the Director of National Intelligence and the Pentagon to present Congress an unclassified report by next month. This is a bizarre issue. The Pentagon and other branches of the military have a long history of sort of dismissing this. What makes you think that this time is going to be different? I mean, we're going to find out when we get that report. You know, there's a stigma on Capitol Hill. I mean, some of my colleagues are very interested in this topic and some kind of, you know, giggle when you, when you bring it up. But I, I don't think we can allow the stigma to keep us from having an answer to a very fundamental question. What do you want us to do about this? I want us to take it seriously and have a process to take it seriously. I want us to have a process to analyze the data every time it comes in, that there be a place where this is cataloged and constantly analyzed until we get some answers. Maybe it has a very simple answer. Um, maybe it doesn't.
throughout history, unidentified flying objects of various shapes and sizes have appeared in our skies. Thousands have witnessed mysterious flying saucers, orbs, cubes, and tic-tacs. But unidentified triangle-shaped craft have been reported by thousands of witnesses over the last four decades. So the team has launched a new investigation. Hello. How are you? Thank you. Good, come on in. Take one, partner. I was in the Army for 24 years. I got to Fort Bragg in January of 1990. Come August 1990 is when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Uh, what Iraq has done violates every norm of international law. In December 1990, on the eve of the Gulf War, a veteran who has to be called JT is deployed to a large American outpost in the Saudi desert. I was deployed north to Hafer al-Batin. It's in heavily scanned, restricted airspace. It was Super Bowl Sunday. It was just past sunset. Everybody else was watching the pregame show, and I was the only one out there. As I looked up into the sky, I saw something that really caught my attention because it was the only thing there. It was a triangle of three orangish white lights drifting silently and slowly through the sky. They moved as though they were part of an isosceles triangle. This was not a high altitude object, probably between 1,000 and 2,000 feet is what I would estimate. It was following a perfect due east course drifting elegantly through the sky. There was absolutely no sound at all. I mean, nothing. I was stunned. I was straight up stunned. I went back inside the tent, and I told my best friend about it, only him. And he had told me that he had heard others talking about similar things. And we really didn't go into it too much because the Super Bowl started, and. Whitney Houston sang the national anthem, and that was it. Everybody else was sucked into the game. I've never seen anything like it since then or before then. JT's sighting matches descriptions the team has heard before. He had a very clear view of lights on the corners of the triangle. It's part of a stunning global pattern that's reported by people from all walks of life, as well as military and law enforcement personnel. That doesn't fit any type of, of known aircraft that I'm aware of. Another Gulf War veteran believes he witnessed a similar triangle UFO just over a year later in the same area. It was 1992 in the central Persian Gulf. I was a Navy cryptologic technician trained in Persian Farsi, the national language of Iran. I often deployed to the Persian Gulf, where we provided theater-level support to uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions. This is probably one of the more highly trained individuals that the US military and the intelligence community has. For all intents and purposes, this gentleman is a spy on the combat field. The Gulf War had ended only a year earlier. Tensions remained high. Michael Vai was on the USS Mobile Bay, patrolling the Persian Gulf not far from the location of JT's Saudi Arabia sighting. I was temporarily assigned, and I was taking some time to come get some fresh air and see what was going on. I made my way up to the 06 level, about as high as you can get on this particular warship. I was up there just sightseeing, skylarking, as they say in the Navy. There were no flight ups underway. 
And all of a sudden, there was a pulsing sound that I felt as much as heard. It was a very low frequency rumble, between a rumble and a pulse. Like a, I looked up and there it was. It was the most pristine, equilateral black triangle flying directly over our ship as if it had flown right up our wake. In each corner were these bright round areas. The altitude of this thing was about 10,000 feet, and its relative speed appeared to me to be somewhere between three and 500 miles per hour. The aircraft did not leave a contrail. It was absolutely stunning, majestic. From the time that I first saw the craft until it faded from view, it was no more than 10 seconds. So I went back down below deck and I saw no indication that this thing was being tracked on radar. At the speed at which I had seen this thing passing overhead, it should have still been on the radar picture. It was in broad daylight, a direct overflight of some of the most sensitive airspace on the planet. I was astounded by what I saw. Hmm. Though Michael Vai's Gulf War sighting is similar to JT's, the team notices one striking difference. Once again, here we have this, this black triangle that shows up. And this was in broad daylight, by the way. This wasn't at night. This is unusual. Yes. Two aircraft at that time that I can think of that would fit that pattern of a triangle, one being the F-117, and the other one may have been some sort of stealth bomber. But the silent profile would reduce observability. A low-flying triangle with lights on each corner, no contrails, no sound of jets, and no visible source of lift. Could the triangle spotted by JT and Vi be explained by a top secret US warplane? Triangle-shaped aircraft are a part of US stealth plane history. America's first stealth warplane, the hypersonic SR-71 Blackbird, first saw action in the late 1960s. The B-2 stealth bomber was unveiled in 1989. And the F-17 Nighthawk, a stealth attack aircraft, played a crucial role in winning the Gulf War. All three aircraft used a radical new triangle-shaped design, but the military witnesses are certain these are not what they saw. It was not an F-117 Nighthawk. It was not a B-2 bomber. It had no sawtooth edges. It was a perfect black equilateral triangle. Even at 1,000, 2,000 feet, you're going to hear something from a F-117 or any other aircraft. As it moved through the sky, there was absolutely no sound at all, not even a whisper. I mean, nothing. I have an advanced degree in aviation science. I worked government aerospace for 20 years. This didn't fit anything that had previously been rolled out publicly. 